0: Well, I don't know if you um, enjoyed poetry when you studied at school. I'm one of the probably the freaks that actually did. Um, and there's a phrase that appears in a poem entitled Burnt Norton by the poet T.S. Eliot. That's always sort of resounded with me. I think it's just a great phrase. And near the beginning of the poem, Eliot writes this. He writes, Humankind cannot bear too much reality. See, according to Eliot. We all instinctively try to avoid difficult and painful truths that we see in ourselves and in the world around us. Humankind cannot bear too much reality. And if that's true of humanity in general, then I think there are many people in the world who would say that is doubly true of Christians. See, Christianity is seen by many as as a crutch for people who cannot cope with the real world, who cannot bear Reality. It was Karl Marx who described religion as the opiate of the people. And many people today presume that the attraction of Christianity lies in the escape it offers us from the real world. See, Christianity drugs us into believing fantasies about God and heaven, into believing that our lives matter, that they have a purpose, into believing there's a God out there who loves us, who is good. See, instead of those fantasies, these commentators argue that in reality, well, we're on our own to make the best of life. That God either doesn't exist or He's entirely uninterested in us. But they argue that that reality is just too frightening for some people. So we opt for religion or spirituality to hide from that. And Christianity is just one of those options. So according to that view, Christians cannot bear very much reality. And speaking as a Christian this morning, I think I need to confess that at times we can resemble that caricature a bit more closely than we think we do. See, when Christians gather together on a Sunday, often we encourage one another to forget the difficult realities we're facing in our everyday lives out there. So instead of facing up to our anxieties and struggles, we actually seek to avoid them when we come together through, through worship, through sermons, through prayer. Through prayer that all seem designed sometimes to shield us from the real world. And in fact, over the years, as I've spoken to to other Christians, I've often detected sort of a low-level anxiety in them. A fear that maybe, just maybe, faith in Jesus actually isn't able to help us cope with the real world. That maybe the Christian gospel isn't quite as powerful as the Bible claims it is. And that maybe if we ask too much of Jesus, then it's going to be exposed as just an illusion or a lie. And some Christians fear, maybe my faith is fine on a Sunday, fine in a home group, fine even when the sun is shining, but, but when reality hits, it just can't cope with that reality. At, at first glance, when we look at the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 4, verse 4, it sort of seems to add substance to that depiction of the Christian life. So let me read verse 4 for us. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Well, isn't Paul just advocating the power of positive thinking here? Rejoice in the Lord and you won't have time to think about the grim realities out there. The big bad world and all its problems. Or even more so, look at verse 8 of our passage this morning. Chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And I've often heard those verses used to to warn Christians off engaging too closely with the real world. Engaging too closely with things that don't measure up to Paul's criteria. So Christians are... Discouraged from engaging with politics because of sleaze and scandal. Christians shouldn't go to the cinema or watch television because of sex and violence. Christians should avoid contact with anything that is not good and godly. See, is that what Paul's saying here? We actually need to turn our back on that real world of sordidness and fallenness. Well, no, I don't believe that is what Paul's saying in verse 8. So when we read these verses, verses 4 and 8 of Philippians 4, in their original context, text, we see they're actually commands given by Paul in a passage that is deeply concerned with reality, deeply concerned with the real world and the harshness of the real world. See, Paul doesn't urge Christians to run away from reality, Instead, he wants them to be aware of the problems and difficulties that will challenge them in their life together as a church. But what Paul does urge them to do, and through this letter what Paul urges us to do, is to find joy in knowing the Lord even in the midst of those harsh realities. See, Paul says we don't have to hide or fear life in a fallen world. We have to run away from it. What we can see is that faith in Jesus is a faith that can overcome those harsh realities. We can see here, as Paul urges us to see, that in this world the Lord Jesus is with us and he will have the last word on our experiences here. See, As we've seen again and again in this letter, Christians don't have to fear the world. Not because we're, we're better than other people. Not because we're more resilient than them. And no, the only reason we don't have to fear the world, the only reason we can face up to reality, is because of Jesus. Our joy rests completely on him and the victory he has won on our behalf. So Paul can say, with confidence, rejoice in the Lord always, even as he faces up. To the real world. So what does Paul have to say about life in a fallen world in this passage? Well, he acknowledges that actually this world can be a painful place to live in. Alongside that emphasis on rejoicing in the Lord, there is a place for tears in God's people. And in fact, we find Paul himself in verses 18 to 19 in tears as he writes to the Philippians. Just read chapter 3 verses 18 to 19 for us. For as I have often told you before, and now I say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. See, first of all, Paul tells us that living in the real world, we have to acknowledge that there are people who will reject the cross of Christ. Again, Philippians is a letter centered on that theme of joy. But Paul is clear. Joy only comes when someone submits themselves to Christ. Joy only comes when we ask God to forgive us on the basis of Christ's death for us on the cross. So to live as an enemy of the cross of Christ is to live as an enemy of real joy. If someone rejects Jesus, they are walking away from the grace of God. And in doing that, Paul says, they are headed for God's judgment. As Paul puts it in verse 19, their destiny is destruction. And that matters to Paul. That affects Paul deeply. He cannot think of people turning their back on life, and grace and joy without weeping. He may be referring to people who are professing believers here. People who say, yes, I do follow Jesus, but by their lives they show that that their mind is just on here and now. We could certainly apply that phrase, enemies of the cross of Christ, to anyone who rejects Jesus. Again, the New Living Translation puts the end of verse 19 this way. It writes, all they think about is this life here on earth. All they think about is this life here on earth. And that could describe so many of the people around us. It could describe us most of the time. And because of that, their destiny is destruction. They are not ready to meet God. And that affects Paul deeply. As I have told you before, and now I say again, even with tears, See, Paul wants the Philippian Christians to know this painful truth. Not everyone they know will come to faith in Christ. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to hear that difficult reality as well. Not everyone you pray for or share the gospel with will ultimately follow Jesus. Not everyone in this world becomes a Christian. That is is a painful reality for Paul to bear, but he wants the Philippian Christians to see it. Because otherwise, they will demand too much of God. They will demand too much of themselves. Again, I've seen some really gifted evangelists almost just wear themselves out because their friends just do not trust in Jesus. They think, well, it's because of me. I'm doing it wrong. I've got to do it more. I've got to pray more, work harder. There is elements, glimmers of truth in that. But Paul says not everyone will believe, and we need to accept that. It is a painful reality. Paul weeps over it. He says we need to see that. But more than that, Paul also wants that to motivate us. Again, not everyone will trust in Jesus, not everyone will escape God's judgment actually, Paul doesn't just resign himself to that. And you know, we've acknowledged already, Paul wants Christians to live in the real world. He wants us to be realistic and accepting that not everything will happen the way we want it to. Not everyone will accept Jesus in their lives. But, but he doesn't want us to be realists in the way the world defines realism. Because all too often we think of realists as people who calmly accept things as just the way they are, who you're even cynical about them. You see, that's not the attitude Paul is calling us to here. Paul doesn't call Christians to be calm realists. He calls us to be weeping realists. We shouldn't be shocked by the opposition we face when we share the Gospel, but we shouldn't be left cold by it either. We should be deeply troubled by it, even to the point of tears. See, we need to recognise not everyone will trust in Jesus. But we need to see that Jesus is powerful and is able to change us. We're not simply to resign ourselves to this hard truth. We're to live in the real world, but actually we trust in a Saviour who rose from the dead and we trust in a Saviour who can transform lives in this real world. Again, Paul is convinced this Jesus in whom he trusts, he's able to take hold of his enemies and transform them into his friends. Again, look back at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3. Paul himself back there reminds himself and reminds his readers that he himself lived as an enemy of the cross of Christ for much of his life and Christ transformed him. Christ met him and forgave him and gave him new life. Again, not everyone we know will follow Jesus. Not everyone we know will trust in him. But many will. We're to accept that truth. But we're to labour to share Christ with others. Because Paul knows many in Philippi did follow Jesus. And he rejoices in that. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He refers to them, the Christians in Philippi, as, as my brothers you whom I love and long for, my joy and crying. Jesus transformed lives in Philippi. And Jesus transforms lives in Oxford today. Again, Tom already referred to it. We had our annual church meeting on Tuesday of this weekend. And in that meeting, Peter reminded us that we've actually seen nine people baptized in the past year. We've seen real conversions. People who have met the risen Lord Jesus. See, Jesus is able to take his enemies and transform them into his friends. That doesn't happen with everyone we pray for. Paul wants to be clear about that. But it does happen because Jesus is a powerful Savior. And he's still at work today. So Paul gives us a difficult truth there to grapple with. But he also offers us hope in overcoming it. And then in chapter 4, Paul turns to another aspect of life in the real world that, that we might be tempted to run away from or avoid. And that reality is that Christians will disagree and argue with one another. And this is one of those sort of painful truths when someone becomes a Christian. I remember myself as a teenager, I just believed, well, this is great, I'm a Christian now and we're all going to get along swimmingly. But Paul is very honest here. And Paul's got a lot to say about unity among Christians in this letter. But he's also clear, even in a healthy church like Philippi, there will be disputes among believers. Verse 2. I plead with Odia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord again, you can only imagine how embarrassed these women must have felt when this letter was read out in Philippi, when the Apostle Paul mentions them by name because they're arguing with each other. And how much worse they would have felt if they realised this letter was going to end up in the New Testament. And 2,000 years later, we know these two women solely because they argued with each other. But you see, this is a reality. Christians argue with one another. Paul's clear here. These are genuine believers. Their, their disagreement doesn't cast doubt over the reality of their faith. Again, Acts chapter 16 tells us the Philippian church began with a group of women who met to pray by a river outside the city and Euodia and Syntyche may have been among them. They had contended at Paul's side in the cause of the gospel. Verse 3. So these are believers. They are genuine, committed Christians. And yet... They argue, yet they disagree. Again, painful as it is, in the real world, Christians will argue. Christians still struggle with sin and we will sometimes even violently disagree with one another. And Paul wants us to be clear-sighted about that. Don't be an idealist when you come to any church for you will only be disappointed. But, as with those people who reject the cross of Christ. Paul both accepts the reality of Christians disagreeing and he also refuses to just resign himself to it. Verse 2, I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. The unity among believers was just too precious to Paul not to fight for it. And this unity was too damaging not to just let it pass. See, Christians will disagree. We need to be honest about that. But we should pray and work together that those disagreements will not bring disrepute to the name of Christ. Again, thinking of the annual church meeting this week, I think we can thank God for the unity he has given us as a church. Because there were big issues to discuss there. And people did disagree on the best way forward. But when it came to it, even in the light of those disagreements, we were able to unite together. There was a sense of, of, of just no bitterness, of grace with one another. And we should thank God for that. But we also need to be clear, if, if believers like Yodi and Sintyke can fall out with each other, then we are just as prone to that. So we need to guard against that. We need to pray against that. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel that they had shared alongside Paul. Of the God who deals with us graciously. who doesn't hold our sins against us. of The God who loves us and bears with us. And he calls on us to love one another and bear with one another. So Christians will disagree. But we are to pray that those disagreements will not grow and bring Jesus' name into disrepute. And then the third reality of life in the real world that Paul wants to prepare us for is alluded to in chapter 4, verse 6. When he writes, do not be anxious about anything. And Paul wrote those words because he knew that anxiety will come. Anxieties will shake our hearts and our minds, even as Christians. And in this letter, we actually catch glimpses of of some of the anxieties felt by Paul and by the Philippians at the time the letter was written. So Paul, we learn in chapter 2, verse 28, was anxious when Epaphroditus was ill, when Epaphroditus nearly died. That caused him great anxiety. And he was anxious that the Philippian Christians would would believe the false teachers who were among them, telling them they needed to be circumcised. That's chapter 3. Then the Philippians themselves, they were anxious about Paul's imprisonment. In chapter one. They thought that is hindering the spread of the gospel. And they were anxious about the opposition they were facing as a church. See, both Paul and the Philippians experienced anxiety in their lives. Joy in knowing Jesus does not remove all anxiety and the reality of anxiety for believers. Again, I don't know what you might be feeling anxious about this morning. But I am confident that we all do have things that make us anxious about the future in our lives. And we get anxious because we're not God. We get anxious because we do not see the end from the beginning as God does. We don't know and can't claim to know what the future holds for us, for our loved ones, for our children, for this church. See, anxieties will come In the Christian life. Paul's confident of that here. But again he doesn't just resign himself to it. He says take your anxieties to the God who has called you. Paul's both a realist and he's a follower of the risen Lord Jesus. And Paul believes that even though anxieties will come. We can bring them honestly before the Lord. That our hearts and our minds might be shaken by anxiety. But God does offer protection from that anxiety. So again, this passage, so much about joy, but there are realities Paul wants us to be aware of. He lives in the real world and he wants Christians to live in the real world. But then, once we've accepted that, once we accept that, yes, there are painful realities around us, Paul wants to lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus who is with us and who has overcome the world. So what does this passage have to say to us about rejoicing in the real world? Well, firstly, back in chapter 3 again, Paul tells us, look to the future Christ has in store for you. You And again, after acknowledging that the Philippian Christians will face opposition from enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul then lifts their eyes to the future. Verse 20. Of chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. The residents there took pride in their Roman citizenship. The Paul urges the believers here take greater pride in your heavenly. Citizenship. You now belong to God. While others may reject you, God never will. And one day, your heavenly citizenship will be enjoyed to the full. When Jesus returns, when he brings about that new creation, when he transforms our lowly bodies, so they will be like his glorious body. Look to the future, says Paul. Accept the reality around you, but look to the future and rejoice in it. Again, looking at this passage, I'm just struck, why do the New Testament writers keep, keep banging on about the Christian hope for the new creation? Why is it that I find myself keeping on preaching about the new creation? Well, speaking for myself, I know that if I don't remind myself about the new creation, I will just forget it and live as if here and now is all that matters. See, naturally, I'm just like the enemies of the cross of Christ in verse 19. My mind is on earthly things. All that matters is here and now. If I don't preach about the new creation, then I will forget about it. And I believe that's why Paul and the other New Testament writers keep on referring to it in their letters. We need to remember this glorious future Jesus has for us, if we are gonna persevere for him, if we're gonna see through this world and see this isn't all that matters. Because life here on earth looks like it'll go on forever. But it won't, Paul says. It looks as if life here and now, that's the important stuff. And and spiritual things like, like faith in Christ or reading the Bible or prayer, that's us nice, you can do that if you've got the time. But the important stuff needs to take priority. But actually, here and now is not of the most value. Our lives here and now only make sense if we live them in the light of our future hope. If we live them in the light of Jesus, who will return one day to have the final word in this fallen world. Again, a few moments ago, we acknowledged that that anxieties come because we don't know what the future holds for us or our loved ones. And that's true of the immediate future. But see, Paul here says, if we're Christians here today, we actually know in a fundamental sense what the future does hold for us. That Jesus will return. Jesus will transform us into people with resurrection bodies. And he will bring about a new creation, far more real and this real world in which we live now. So, if we're going to rejoice in a fallen world, Paul is convinced we need to see the future Christ has in store for us, the future Christ bought at the cross. We need to actively remind ourselves of it. We need to lift our eyes to that future. And then, very simply, Paul says, Remember the Lord who saved you. Again in chapter 4, verse 3, we've seen these two women, Yodi and Syntyche, Paul looks to their past and says, well, they once contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, but now, now they're at loggerheads with each other. See, there's a suggestion that the problem came when they forgot the gospel that saved them. See, when these two women remembered the gospel, when Yodi and Syntyche let that act as the driving force in their lives, then, then they weren't arguing. They were holding out that gospel to the people of Philippi. They were letting that gospel shape their relationships. But when they didn't focus on that gospel, their energies got diverted to other things, and that led to their disagreement. So in verse 4, Paul urges Yodi and Syntyche. He urges all of us to rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. See, the key to unity and joy among Christians is being remember the Lord who saved us and the gospel that transforms us. See, we won't just stumble across joy in the Christian life. We won't just stumble across unity as a church. God doesn't just zap us with those things. God calls us to actively find our joy in the Lord Jesus, to rejoice in what he has done for us in the gospel. Because only then will we relate to one another in a way that honors Christ. And only then will we discover who we really are in Christ. What Jesus has done in our lives. Verse 5 Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Look to Jesus. He's our example in gentleness. Learn from him and know that he is with us. Do not be anxious about anything, verse 6. Instead, pray. Remember that thanks to Jesus, you are now a child of God and you can approach your father with anything that makes you anxious. He delights in hearing the prayers of his children. Don't be anxious. Don't hold on to it. Give it to God. And verse 7, And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You notice, Paul doesn't say you will get what you pray for. He doesn't say, pray and you will always get it. What he does promise us is the peace of God. And he likens that to, to a garrison of soldiers given to us to protect our hearts and our minds when they are shaken. Given to us to protect us when we feel we do not have it in us to keep going, to keep trusting in Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus, Paul reminds us. And he is committed to protecting and keeping you. Pray to him and you will receive his peace. And that peace will guard your heart and your mind. See, Paul's convinced that Christians can find joy in a fallen world because of the Lord who has saved them. Because he has overcome the world. In his resurrection from the dead, Jesus won the great victory over sin and death. He will return from heaven one day. And verse 6 again, verse 5, sorry, he is near. He is with his people. He will return and he is with us now. So what should we do as we wait for that return? Well, verses 8 to 9, we should meditate on God's goodness to us. In Christ. Let me read verse 8 again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. if you've already seen this morning, this verse it can be used by some to argue that Christians should avoid any contact with, with evil or the sordid realities of the world. But in this passage, Paul has just reviewed some of those realities. Opposition to the gospel, disagreements among Christians, anxiety in our hearts. Paul isn't advocating here that just think about nice things and those things will go away. But instead he urges us, you will have all these struggles You will have all these trials. Your heart will feel fragile. So fill your minds with God's goodness to you. Remember the character of Christ. It will never be enough for us simply to run away from sin and evil all around us. We need to run towards something. And that something is Christ. We to positively turn to him and fill our minds with who he is. And look at verse 8 again. The words Paul uses could all be descriptions of Christ's character. True, noble, right, pure, lovely. Meditate on who Christ is. Read your Bible with that goal in mind, that you would rejoice in him. Not to learn more facts about the Bible or about God, but so that you will rejoice in knowing him, that you will see Christ's character. And meditate on what Christ has given you. And elsewhere, the Bible is clear, every good thing we have comes from God, be it family, friends, achievements, laughter, this church... So recognize God's goodness to you. Meditate on it. And supremely meditate on God's gift in the Gospel. That we now belong to Christ. We are now in Christ. We have His Spirit at work among us. So as we finish this morning, Paul is confident that Christians do not have to run away from the real world. They can confront it, but they can also find joy in the midst of it. And that is because we follow a Lord who has overcome this world. And Paul reminds us here that the real world around us, the opposition the Philippians will face, the opposition we will face, the disagreements that came in Philippi and the disagreements that will come here in this church, the anxieties that attacked the Philippians and the anxieties that will attack us and maybe are attacking us today, they won't have the final word, Paul says. See, that belongs to Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, Paul says. Don't run away from the world. Run to the Lord you will sustain you in the midst of this world. Let me just finish with some words of Jesus from John 16. Spoken to his disciples the night before he was crucified. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world.